Clubhouse. Do you love Christmas? Do you love Christmas movies? Do you wish it was Christmas time year round? Well, do we have a podcast for you? Welcome to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Whoa, 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 Clark. We're keeping this show family-friendly. Where's the Tylenol? Welcome to week 45 of the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. This is Caroline. And this is Mike. Tonight we're talking about Christmas holiday. Man, that sounds like the most Christmassy movie ever, right? Right? It's like double holiday. It's like holiday, holiday. Christmas, Christmas. Not only is it a holiday, it's a Christmas holiday. This may be the most on-brand named Christmas movie of our 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. Red flag. Red flag. <laughs> you know when it was released, Mike? July 31st. Oh, red flag. Chong, chong, chong. Red flag. But let's hear Let's hear what this is based on. It's based on a 1939 novel of the same name by W. Somerset Maugham. It was written by, or the screenplay was adapted by Herman J. Mankiewicz. Does that name ring a bell to you, old Mank? Sounds like a Citizen Kane-ish. It does sound like a Citizen Kane-ish kind of thing. He is the co-writer with Orson Welles and Citizen Kane. And the subject played by Gary Oldman of the Netflix movie from, was it last year? Uh, time means nothing anymore. Mank. But Mank, yeah. Mank was, was actually, Mank. I actually, movie I in, enjoyed immensely and I really liked. I know a bunch of people did not like it. I thought it was great. You enjoyed immensely and really liked it? Wow. I did. All of those things. I have all of, all of the good adjectives for it. <laughs> uh, it was directed by Robert Siadmak, who I didn't really know his name. He, he, he has a couple, I mean, he has a ton of movies. I guess he was known kind of as a 1940 40s, 1950s thrillers guy. He was like a proto Alfred Hitchcock type. Well, so this was uh, widely released on July 31st, 1944. Right there, right that 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 World War II boon. We've done a bunch of movies in this time span. Meet Me in St. Louis comes out, you know, a couple of months after this. Uh, And and actually, this movie starred Deanna Durbin, who was in a bit of a rivalry with Ms. Judy Garland at this time. Both Mm -hmm. women trying to break out of their their teen slash wide-eyed, innocent girl kind of mold that they had both kind of been in in the 30s and the early 40s, both of them in 1944 trying to break out, uh, break away from that. This is not an innocent Deanna Durbin that we're seeing here. Again, let me give you this one-sentence plot summary. All right. A young femme fatale type woman realizes that the man she married is an incorrigible wastrel. I secretly want my <laughs> tombstone to read that he was an incorrigible wastrel. <laughs> I do. Put it in the will, man. Someone's got to do it for you. Here lies a great dad and an incorrigible wastrel. So. Those are the only two things you need to be. Uh, that's that did that. I mean, I think that sums it all up for me. So wow, wow. Had, good, had good hair. Had good hair. So had good. Hair. <laughs> that's all I want mine to say. Here <laughs> lies Caroline. Good had wig. good hair. <laughs> Excellent wig. Um, okay, so we were starting to talk about the cast there. Deanna Durbin. You may not know her. Uh, but she was actually the biggest star in this movie, actually, which is kind of wild because when you read the second name, you're gonna be like, what? <laughs> 
crazy. I kept looking at his face and I'm like, you're so familiar to me, but you're so young. I can't quite place you. Young and, and murderous. You're so young and murderous. Gene Kelly. Can you believe it was Gene Kelly? I totally, I, that that threw me so hard. Do, 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 do. Yeah, he was not singing in the rain. He was a bad dude, y'all. Bad dude. Uh, this is <laughs> this is early Gene Kelly, though. And I think that confuses a lot of people. And since it came out, this movie actually opened to mixed reviews to begin with. Uh, they they were not okay with Deanna Durbin playing this woman of questionable morals working in because the original book has this in a Paris brothel. It's moved. <laughs> Mankiewicz moves it to a uh, New Orleans like nightclub. But it, the idea that that Jackie, you know, nay Abigail is is a prostitute or a woman of the night is 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 being implied here, especially given the the book's material. And so the, the people were not OK with Deanna Durbin doing this. This was too dramatic. It was too much of a change for her. And Gene Kelly, he was still like new. This was only I think it was his fourth movie. He, it wouldn't be until he returns from the war that he gets the good guy image that he would go on to be remembered for. So, yeah, it's kind of a weird. This is this is like proto Gene Kelly. This is Gene Kelly before he becomes Gene Kelly. Yeah. So, yeah. Well, it, I mean, God, his face was so, so, so young. The guy playing Charlie Mason, he's the lieutenant who finds himself unwittingly in New Orleans over Christmas break. Dean Harrens plays him. This is actually Dean Harrens' first movie. I think that's the only kind of notable thing here. I think he does a pretty good job. He He's doing a lot more reacting than talking. But I think he's doing pretty good reacting. I mean, he he's playing the the person listening to Abigail spill her story, I think, decently well for a guy who's never done it before. He's he's all the guys in the submarine listening to the old lady tell the tale in Titanic. <laughs> It's been 84 years. Uh, Charlie is interesting because Abigail telling her story to him, I think she starts to treat him like a little bit like a cautionary tale. His backstory is he's another one of these Dear John telegram breakup letters. Sorry, Charlie, I've gone and married another man. And he's really super mad about it. And he he says a couple of times in this movie, I'm going to go do something about it. He's kind of a little threatening when he's talking about what he may do when he gets to San Francisco. Francisco. And I think there's actually a little parallel there. Abigail kind of adopts him and 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 tells her the story more to be like, don't turn into Robert, her Robert Bennett, her husband, Gene Kelly, which is kind of an interesting thing that she sees the the possibility of danger in him. I mean, this whole thing is a cautionary tale about, you know, getting mixed up with the wrong kind of guy. Or a wrong kind of girl, for that matter, I suppose. I mean, I don't think that that necessarily the that the women in here are uh, come off scot free. No, and I mean, but certainly, uh, it definitely puts a spotlight on the complicated relationship of mothers and sons. Uh, for, for darn sure. It was very Bates-like. It was very Bates-like. You know, when I said this, it was like proto-Hitchcock. That was one of the things I was definitely thinking about. Uh, I mean, this feels like almost like Robert could be like an like a like an origin story for like Norman Bates kind of thing. But uh, let's go back to the car, the cautionary tale because this is the lesson that Charlie meets uh, that or Charlie learns in the course of this kind of chaotic one and a half days Christmas Eve and Christmas days. This is the clip. You don't really know Jackie, Lieutenant. I think I do. I like that crazy kid. I like that one-man look in her eyes. I only wish it was a different kind of guy. I told her she could go home, but she wants to do her job. Hey, didn't she tell me your plane goes out tonight? Yeah, I've got a cab waiting outside. He's going to take me right to the airport. 
Be in San Francisco in the morning, huh? I'm not going to San Francisco. Oh? No, I'm going back to camp. You know, I've learned a hundred years worth of life in the last 24 hours. I found out that you just don't do things because other people have done the same things, the same way. The important thing is being honest with yourself, whatever you feel, whatever you are. That's why I said I think I know Jackie better than you think I do. Or maybe I mean I know Abigail. You're all right, Lieutenant. A couple of interesting things there. One one is, do we ever really know anyone, right? Is that, That's kind of the story here. Abigail thought she knew Robert. She thought she understood him. But she didn't. Uh, you know, the, the nightclub owner lady is saying, you don't really know who Jackie is. But Charlie's saying, yeah, no, I think I do. Or at least I do now. Um, or maybe I at least know her better than you think I do. But do we ever really know anyone? That's kind of the thought that this movie is putting forth. I think that we all only get to see who the other person wants us to see. No matter how much we think we know them, no matter how much you like talk with them or visit with them or do whatever, I think at the end of the day, I mean, the fact that, you know, we're debating Jackie when her name's Abigail, (laughs) you know, and and that's the thing is that she she adopted Jackie as her like persona post everything with her husband. And so. I think you could know someone's like value and in their heart a little bit, maybe without knowing that whole like what everything that they've done in their lives, if you will. So so some people, I think, take it like like if you read the Wikipedia version of somebody, then you know them Mm -hmm. versus like maybe you just know their like essence, which is different. Uh, What did you think of the position that Mrs. Manette, uh, played by Gail Sondergaard, takes with uh, with Abigail? This idea of you did know who Robert was behind, you know, behind the smile and the charm. You you did know he had these tendencies like I, I let you in on it and you knew it and you willfully ignored it. And now when she smacks her and says, you've killed him. I feel like this is I feel like Mrs. Minette is putting a lot of blame, maybe too too much blame at at Abigail's feet here for Robert's actions. But it also feels a little a little bit of the time that maybe women were meant to be their their men's keepers. That that's kind of the message here, which is disturbing. Well, they're definitely. I mean, if you look back at the ad campaigns of like the forties, fifties, even sixties, where your man steps out and cheats because you aren't keeping the house clean enough, or you aren't thin enough, or you're doing something wrong. You're not cooking a, a delicious enough meal, so that's why your man's like acting up or whatever. So yeah, I definitely think there's some sense or a blurring of the line lines between mothering and being a spouse like definitely somehow you become you know your husband's mother right but you know how much is abigail supposed to do here she burns the money she she helps out she watches mrs Manette hide that money and smartly goes and burns it because the cops definitely go check there for it no kidding wait a minute did you was that a place you would have thought to hide money no. sew it inside the curtain i was like wow i actually thought that was pretty smart smart for her to do it smart for the cop to think to check there and then smart for Abigail to be quick enough to take it out and get it out of there before the cops come. Well, yeah, she's thinking, well, the like cops are all de- the way around. <laughs> the cops are really definitely going to check the hem on that, you know. 
And if you That's look at the cop, pretty like, impressive. he like really takes a look at it. I, I almost he beelined right for the curtains. Like, like this was like a known thing. Maybe back in the you know, did you check the curtain money? You know, like <laughs> it seemed like it was a thing. So you know what, Mike? What we haven't done, what we should do. We need to set this up a little bit for our listeners. That this is actually a movie unlike any other movie we've done. Mm-hmm. This is not like a family sit down holiday type classic. This is actually a crime noir movie that has a lot of thrillery twists and turns and suspense. And you really don't know when she's telling the story. I really didn't know where we were going with everything. Like I wasn't sure what was happening, and I certainly didn't expect her to kind of be in on it near to the end, you know, with like hiding the money and um, getting rid of it and being willing to be, you know, a part of it so long as she could still have her robbery. Oh, my God. The scene where she comes down and there's there's uh, the mother sees the stain on the pants and and all the temperature like drops in the room. And poor Abigail, she's like, what's happening? Like Robert yes. and her mother are having this secret conversation as if maybe this has happened before. And Abigail's like, what's happening? What's wrong with the pants? What? Tell me. Like someone talk to me it was it was very distressing to watch her in that situation and again i think that's a relatable thing maybe not the murder part but this idea <laughs> the of murder part. <laughs> the idea of being left out of a conversation that's taking place right in front of you inside of a room i feel like that's something that a lot of people can relate to just to finish the thought with abigail she gets on board she is a help i mean i don't know how much miss manette expects of her in this thriller situation she finally found herself in you know the response to i burned the money is he needed your strength, but you only gave him back his own weakness. Like, that's an intense thing to say some, you know, because you're saying not only is Robert weak, you're saying that you were too weak to help him and made him worse. Not not you were too weak to help him, it, that your version of helping was actually enabling him. Mm. Like, she wanted her to stand up to him and be strong. And so the weakness of burning the money, of not standing up to him, actually enabled him, like, fueled his fire to be even worse. Interesting. But the mother burned the pants, though. So she was doing but the she same thing. She did it, too. But that's right. what the thing was. I mean, she was, she was so pissed at the wife, though, because she was like, I think, okay, so mothering goes to a certain point to where then at some point you no longer have the level of control that you did i mean really any parenting right you no longer do they get to a b and age right so she's hoping that the wife is going to step in and have all this clout so then then she gets pissed at her you didn't use your clout that you should have like you should be on even footing with him and in fact should have taken the upper hand and put him in his place which of course is like eye roll because there's no way that robert was being put in his place by really any of these people but she was relying on her to come in and be the, the the savior of the situation like she knew she had a bad guy on her hands here you know she had raised a bad guy and so now what do you do she's like praying the wife will like set him straight but I, I feel like Abigail just she was so late to the party and despite Mrs. Manette saying that she told her and gave her proper kind of notice she really didn't I mean the couple of times where they're meeting and stuff and where she says you know you have my blessing to marry him it feels like she wants to tell her and then is kind of like takes the tack of oh you'll figure it out when he comes in the room and rips the blankets off the bed yeah that scared me i went <gasps> like yeah. that i think anyone who's ever been in any kind of frightened situation with someone in a room is going to be a little bit triggered by that situation even just for a black and white movie to have a man rip the covers off of a woman in bed it was absolutely scandalous i mean i was scandalized as the audience yeah i mean it won't surprise you to know that back in 1939 a guy named walter wenger who was an independent producer of movies at that time he 
wanted to make this this book that had become like a bestseller in the country. It sold like 100,000 copies in its like first year. Uh, he wanted to turn to a movie in 1939 and the Hayes Code. You know, we've talked about the Hayes Code. The Hayes Code. And, and uh, you have to go listen to our uh, Hollywoodland, the Netflix show uh, yes. set in like the 40s. <laughs> uh, you know, we talk a lot about the Hayes Code and the censorship laws that were in, you know, put in place in Hollywood in the 1930s and 40s. Uh, the Hayes Code said, nope, 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 nope. You can't you can't do a Paris brothel prostitute murder story. Sorry. And and so uh, Mankiewicz gets a hold of the script and Universal begins, you know, decides they want to make this movie. Uh, that's why he actually moves it from a Paris brothel to the New Orleans nightclub. But there's a lot of boundary pushing scandalous kinds of things here. Robert's manhandling of everyone from his mom to his wife to even his own like henchmen if you will is really surprising the only black and white movies that you and i have really been like focused on during these times have been like musicals where the men for the most part are pretty docile or like something like casablanca we covered and i love it or leave it and and you have like the humphrey bogarts and stuff like that like you're not seeing a lot of ripping the covers off grabbing shoulders a lot of you're not seeing a lot of this really he was ready to blow her away like he wasn't having a problem with that no 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 i mean that's the credit to gene kelly I, again i was reading the reviews in this and people panning his performance he's fantastic in this movie when you watch him at the beginning of the movie in the flashbacks you totally get the charm and why she would fall in love with him and all of that, and even him talking about the bookie, and he he all makes it sound like it's a very small part of his life, and maybe even in the past a little bit. And this idea that the Manettes, you know, for as long as you know, it's like there's been a country, there have been Manettes, and that him and his mother are kind of this last of the line. He's this very charming, suave kind of baby-faced, you know, guy, but he really turns into, like, a grotesque fella over the course of this movie when he rips off the covers and you really see his face is all, you know, deranged-looking. But then when he breaks out of jail at the end of the movie and he's not shaved and he's uh, he's in Simon Fenimore's room with the gun and he's... Don't, don't, let's not spoiler that very last second because this is, like, a thriller. I do want to kind of leave it at that on that part, so don't okay. go further than that. But I agree with you that he looks menacing as all get out he rivals many of the the truly bad villains that like i've seen in these like thriller type movies like don't get me wrong he's not like michael myers or something but he's no like, no yeah in this psychological this is he's like a, a gangster yeah who can play a good guy in a way that's scary you know yeah, yes and which is which is a really dangerous sort though the one who can charm the pants off of you and you know then turn around and murder someone is maybe the most dangerous kind of this person there is a great speech because you don't want to spoil the ending. I would just say there is a really interesting speech that Deanna Durbin, that Abigail gives towards the end of the movie that really makes you think about if he wasn't as paranoid as he is, you know, these these two could have maybe had a future, uh, like a Bonnie and Clyde kind of future, uh, which is really interesting to think about that. She really did love him, even with all the things he did to her and did in general. I'm left thinking like, she would have gone with him. She would love him. 
really interesting, interesting movie, interesting thriller, not anything to do with Christmas. <laughs> we should have said that at the very beginning. Maybe <laughs> no, save people I mean, 20 is, minutes. This is the part that we're getting to, though, right? About like, is this a Christmas movie? I do want to say two things, though, that are that are real um, big to me about this movie that surprised me. Two big musical things, which it sounds funny to call like Midnight Mass musical, but it, it was. And, and it was so, oh my gosh, so Mike and I are both Catholic. And so for for us, I'll speak for you, Mike, that this Midnight Mass, I mean, the the music that they're playing and the and it's it's incredibly loud. Like the rest of the movie was played at one volume. And then the music, especially in the Midnight Mass scene and at the concert that they go to, both of them are played so much louder. I, I mean, I had to like run for the remote. That Midnight Mass scene was so powerful. She's crying and the music is there's something about Midnight Mass just generally for me that is very moving. It's one of the few times of the year when my whole family was like in the in the church pew together. You know, people might go to church separately, whatever, but but we all go together for that one. And to like look down the line and see like my cousins and see my mom and dad and my grandmother and my kids and everybody like there's something that always kind of gives me like a lump in my throat. And um, especially my son sings at like the top of his lungs when we're in church, like as if like he's the the entire hymn is resting on Jack to sing it the loudest. And uh, and so he just like belted out. And there's something about all that like innocence and and just sort of like that need for renewal every year that that makes it so powerful. And and same actually with the concert that they go to. I felt the same way. Like it's so loud and so big it like rattled my chest. I was I was really impressed with those two scenes. And there's something about the church scene and making you break and just finally you can finally tell essentially her sins if you will she's it's like a confession prompt to, to be happening there that i just thought was amazing it was a great use of both the visual you know of, of seeing the altar and everything but then the just pounding music that was a real latin mass that was filmed actually they actually filmed a real latin mass it had taken place at the saint viviana cathedral which uh it's now closed but with a, was a cathedral in la that was an actual full latin mass that they recorded and that you're watching there and there's something very dramatic and powerful about the pre-vatican II latin mass that catholics growing up now don't really know putting it together on christmas you're right there, there's something very powerful about midnight mass at christmas time anyway but you add the power of the the latin and the formality and the solemnity of that kind of mass together with the music it was very overwhelming when she i mean she drops to the floor and she's crying she's a great crier to begin with but that scene is like a Affecting. That scene is is dramatic. It is cathartic, though, also. You're 100% right, because she, she really does begin to open up after that. It kind of becomes like a, hey, pal, I'm going to tell you my story kind of movie from that point on. It feels like it just gets to her. And that that's the thing about, about Midnight Mass is that there is something when you're in church and it is, I mean, that a, a Latin Mass and everything. I mean, it's all so like, man, Mike, this is your rites and rituals. It, it, there's something about it. It really, I don't know if it's just because I was raised Catholic, but it like breaks you down. Like 
my dad, who's not like somebody who would like sing out in public or anything like that, he also like belts out like <laughs> and, yeah. and in Latin, like singing the songs and everything. Like it's all happening and everybody's just like in it. Like when you're in there, they, you could not feel more like I don't I, I don't want to use the word cult like, but you could not feel more like sucked in as a group. Like we are all doing this. We're all chanting the same words. And there's something about it that it's it's like it's like a pulsating group of people, you know? Guys, don't forget to check us out on our Patriot content, Mike's Rites and Rituals, where we talk about... <laughs> and Caroline's pulsating cults. And pulsating, pul- <laughs> yes. Pulsating cults is our most downloaded episode. You have to go check out Caroline's pulsating cults. Um <laughs> For all of your rights, it's, it, rights and rituals, it's a needs. wide range of uh, of uh, rites and rituals we do in pulsating cults. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the Anna Durbin here because you are particularly taken. I think one of the one of the I am particularly taken. way. Finish that sentence. One of the unexpected <laughs> outcomes of doing this podcast is that I think you have become particularly taken by the female leads of this time. Your oh, yeah. Barbara Stanwyck and begging Judy. you to do a podcast with me about that. Maybe we will. You guys. I want, I'm going to call it the Gumption Gals. Gumption Gals. Sign me mm-hmm. up. Uh, you'll see some pulsating cults. Maybe Gals with Gumption. Either way. Either way. GD, GWG or G squared? Gumption Gals. The the, the old GGs. <laughs> okay, not Gilmore Girls. Not, this is not, not your Golden Girls, but Gumption Girls. What? Interesting. What is it with the GGs? Golden Girls and Gilmore Girls are Gumption Girls. Oh. <gasps> We figured it out. We figured it out. Don't With say that on this podcast. The time we figured it out. <laughs> I did say it. I said it on this podcast. Don't say it on this podcast. It's not ours to say. Oh, boy. Um. Okay. Oh, yeah. So, Deanna Durbin, what's your take here? I mean, this is, uh, like I said, a little bit of a rival to a Judy Garland at this time. Oh, Judy could never have played this. So, I certainly hope she doesn't actually think she's a... Well, she's I, they were there. They were both women who had come up in the business as, as, young, as young teens and, and now in their 20s. They're both singers. I mean, Deanna Durbin, this was the first role she did that wasn't specifically written for her. This was the first role she had done, I think, that didn't feature her singing a lot. There's only the two songs that she sings in this movie, which was less than she normally did. So this is a real departure for her. Interestingly, at the end of her life, this is the movie that she said that it's the only time she was proud of the performance that she gave. This was the kind of movie she wanted to make if she wanted to do more dramatic things. This would be the only time she ever took this kind of turn and was particularly proud of the work. But I'm curious what you think, how she stacks up to the bombshell era, you know, looks-wise, voice-wise, femme Fatale wise, do you buy her as a femme fatale? I mean, she's wearing that that kind of tight black scoop neck dress the back end of the movie. Like, are you buying that, or did it look like a like a like a daughter playing dress up a little bit? What Emma Thompson brought to Love Actually, this is what Deanna Durbin brought to the concept of a bombshell in a movie like this. Hmm. So, what do I mean by that? I mean restraint. I mean, part of being a bombshell or a version of being a bombshell is having sexiness that can be like given a little and taken away. To that point, she isn't like this platinum blonde, red lip, tons of makeup, tightest dress you ever could see. She's not that version of a bombshell. She is more subtle. And I think that's important because I think playing this part of the wife of Robert, which is what she is being defined as in many ways, she has to have this sort of girl next door sweetness side to her that can 
pivot and be overtly sexy and dangerous and 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 like you didn't really know and she even surprised Robert for really how much she might be willing to do for him and for their love and stuff so having that little extra part I think makes her the bombshell for me because she has both sides for bombshells for me are intrigue you are somebody who has that mystique you have that certain something that makes men like lean in that doesn't necessarily have to be the biggest you know bust line that doesn't have to be the tiniest waste it just has to be that certain something and I do think she brings that through her subtleness through her restraint as the actress she doesn't ever do like the fainting couch type business or anything like that which she could and she doesn't no and in I fact, she, in fact she says I'm gonna go sleep on this couch you go sleep in the other room I thought that was scandalous these two are gonna be walking out of a hotel room in the morning they do walk out of a hotel room in the morning they're not my he's a guy in the military and she's uh you know this lounge singer and you know she insists that he takes the bed after their after church and then they go have like a midnight bite to eat you know she's like no no i'm good i'm just gonna sleep on the couch and you know gets herself like breakfast uh you know room service in the morning and stuff i thought that was all very scandalous but also kind of sexy there's a sexiness to this movie in the danger and mystery of it i i found this movie actually very sexy in parts i think because of the strength of the women yeah the mom is a strong woman abigail's a strong woman i blanking on the name of the woman who like owns the nightclub. The lounge, yeah, the lounge singer boss lady. Yeah, yeah I, I can't, okay. I can't recall. She's a strong woman. Like she's a oh, Mae yeah. West type woman that Very. like you totally want to like hang out with, like have a drink with. She's the kind of person who says, these are my girls. You know, she, yeah. she's very, um, she's very Maeve in Westworld. Like, these are my girls. I'm in charge of them. You want to go to any of them. You got to go through me, kind of like very mama bear. Like, and don't, think don't of mess Maeve. around. Okay. So if using that, if you guys are Westworld watchers, use that. Think of the concept of being able to wear a prairie dress and have your hair pulled back and be this loving mom walking through this field, but have the same woman be able to put on leather and be able to kill an entire room full of people in, a, in the blink of an eye. That is like the danger sexy but also innocent sweet nurturing part that i think makes a really amazing bombshell now there's there's other versions of bombshell don't get me wrong that are just like the jessica rabbit like you have that too Rita but Hayworth the femme fatale of, part yeah. is like more there's more there you know there's more there's stuff going on behind her eyes you know yeah no there there's a whole sultry and sexiness in her and in the way she plays this character all of that said Everything about that dress she's wearing at the end of the movie worked for me in a thousand different ways uh, and definitely lingered in my brain well after. Uh, Before we move on to do the fact that this is not a Christmas movie in any way, shape or form and some fast facts, you were telling me offline a fascinating story about this idea of G.I.'s. And letters, because we this movie features another instance of a telegram. Oops, I've gone and married someone else. Sorry, Lieutenant. Well, it's something that I have been trying to wrap my brain around in watching these movies for this podcast. I've been I've been trying to understand, like, what is with supposed love of this era? Like, why are these women always being so willing to go off and marry whomever? You know, like it, it just seemed crazy to me. So I was talking to my grandmother, who is of this era. She's 95. And she was talking to me about these exact time frame 
I didn't give her the setup that this was, I was trying to figure out these movie women, but she said such interesting things. So she was in high school during this, this time and she was dating and I'm using that in air quotes, dating, which really meant writing letters to a guy in the air force, a guy in the Navy, a Marine. And there was a guy like in high school. Now here's the thing that all sounded like so scandalous to me at first, but then when we're talking about it, she's like, no, Caroline, it was patriotic to write to the servicemen. Like that's what you were supposed to be doing. Like that's what we were being told to do as like these like older teenage girls. So essentially they were writing all these letters and, and I said, well, so like, you know, did grandpa like, you know, ask you to marry him? And she was like, all of them asked you to marry them. Like they're all doing that. All these movies, what we were watching so far has been only from the viewpoint of the servicemen. Every time the movie set up, it was like the servicemen's so excited to get married to this girl he's been writing to. Oh my God, the girl totally turns him down or totally goes another direction or, oh my God, she marries some other man. What? And I'm thinking, what's up with these women? Like, what are they doing? Ah, ah, it turns out my grandmother was like, no, yeah, I was like letting them say whatever they wanted to say. I was writing back. I was being supportive. I was being encouraging. They were scared. They were at war. They're at boot camp. They're frightened. I'm being nurturing. I'm being supportive. I'm saying, yes, we'll all be here for you when you get home. I'm saying things like that. But like... They are taking it too far. And like she actually had the Marine show up on leave unexpectedly at her high school, which she was like, Caroline, I'm in high school. And he shows up and he's acting like he's going to take me away. And it's like, what are you talking about? I'm in high school. Like she was painting this picture of the servicemen being in such a headspace that they needed to know they had a life to come back to. So they were writing things and writing all these poems and, and proposals of marriage and all this stuff to feel connected. And, and they needed that. But the women back home were being told just like, just, just let them go. Be patriotic. Write them back. And so they weren't trying to hurt anyone's feelings or anything, but it was happening. So I'm so grateful I had this conversation with my grandmother because I I really could not understand what was going on. I think the other thing that we have to remember too, and this is, it's a, such a strange thing. I don't know if this is just post COVID, but, or also like, we just don't do this anymore. Remember how we were talking about in Meet Me in St. Louis and we were talking about how their parties included like dancing, like partner dancing, mm-hmm. right? Like yeah. not slow dancing, but partner dancing, right? And we actually saw this in um, Christmas in Connecticut, same, where we were both lamenting the fact that adults don't have these like get together dance where you just have fun and dance, but not like a nightclub, but just more carefree than that. I mean, we I saw it in Metropolitan, say. didn't we? We, we saw in Metropolitan with the cha-cha, the cha-cha scenes. Yes, yes. So all those kinds of things. That too, like lent itself to this intimate contact between men and women, even like young you know, younger men and women who are like in their teens and early twenties, but like went further than like high school dances. Like the last time I've slowed dance or danced with anyone amongst other couples was at my prom, maybe a wedding reception, I guess, but nothing like this where like you get together, they turn on the jukebox, whatever you're having a party, you're getting together and everyone like dances and you switch partners like a lot and you have a dance card. All of that is like so much more like you're allowed to like be with different people which sounds so funny i think now we all couple up really fast you're either like one night stand or you're in a relationship but like the idea of having a dance card and actually dancing with a bunch of different people doesn't really happen anymore that like casual part of it doesn't really happen anymore 
Does yes. that make sense? It's like a quickie or you're married. Right, exactly. No, <laughs> yeah. There's like very little in between. There was this swing, I think, to being so territorial in the 80s, 90s, and like early 2000s, I, which I feel like actually is changing now, just generally in like relationships. But the, the idea of the dance card versus you just dance with your own partner, it's almost scandalous if you were to tap someone on the so- shoulder and, and ask to cut in. Could you imagine? Don't you feel like you'd get punched in the mouth these days if you were to do that? Like, well, yeah, maybe it would be it would be seen as offensive or as like you know fighting words. I think a lot of times be like, what? Like, no, go dance with your own partner. Like, this is either she's mine or he's mine, kind of thing. Well, and you're a guy in the dating world. I mean, do you find this to be like? I mean, don't you wish we had like some turkey in the straw action where you could like legit go and you could just have fun and dance with women and have this level of like. Like interaction with the opposite sex that isn't like I'm going to move in with you tomorrow or we're going to have a one night stand, but it's just like we can have fun. And it's not even like grinding at each other in a dark club where we're all drunk. It's like somewhere in between all that. Hey, I had to do a semester of square dancing when I was a sophomore in high school. So I am dying to find myself in situations where I can bow <laughs> to the partner, bow to the corner and uh, and turkey in a straw a little bit. So, Do you think that it's like wedding receptions are the only place that anyone ever gets to do that anymore? And even there, really, it's just the bride that gets passed around, which is probably saying its own thing about mm. society. <laughs> it's not it's it's not like, you know, uh, you know, That's true. you pretty much are dating dancing with your date or whatever right, except really for the not, wife like, except for the bride everyone gets a little right, piece of the bride right. you know like That's you know pass around a little grope on the bride before you have to give her <laughs> away kind of thing too much don't say grope a grope on the bride no we're, we're, ban- we're no, banning that we're not saying grope oh i didn't realize the haze code was here on this <laughs> podcast yeesh well, i hope you're not groping the brides i'm like, not groping anyone i don't i don't grope no one but i don't okay so i think that that was so amazing that idea it was polite to share yourself to to have a dance card i think was it was seen as like i think good manners and it was it was like part of society Definitely. you know yeah yeah and that and that not only that but that it was also okay like mm. it, it was okay to dance with seven guys that night right and at the end be like i had a wonderful time you weren't a bad person or something you know like right. i mean when i just said that if i if i came home at the end of an evening and had said i danced with seven guys at a nightclub tonight i would think that was pretty amazing night in terms of like that's insane scandalous like, yeah very right i don't know i mean if you said i went out tonight and i danced with seven different women throughout the evening that would seem like insane, but a normal dance card would definitely have you doing that. That's and it very was very point. wholesome, yeah. you know? Yeah, there wasn't was... anything wrong with it. It was just having fun. I find it all fascinating, but I'm taking all my criticism that I had on the women where these movies were really set up like, what is with these women? And let's look at these men who have been to- so, you know, jilted and be like, no, 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 The men were in a certain headspace. This was war, people. They right. were in a certain headspace and the women were too and so there was a lot of big talk via letters of what of like a, a future life you know something to look forward to for everyone and something to encourage and support and be patriotic was the word she kept using that's what we had to do keep the morale high right it wasn't what it was kind of made out to be where then these movies are coming out where men felt were feeling like well pfft, 
She wasn't even wanting to get married and having a hundred children. How dare she? She was just being patriotic. It's kind of wild though, because I, I think I'm thinking even like you know, think of like Persian Gulf or you know, Desert Storm or whatever. The, I, I, even then, though, I, I don't think there was this spate of this idea of it was patriotic to write GIs. Then I, I think World War Two was think so. World War Two was just even in Vietnam. I have the feeling like that wasn't even going on. I feel like World War Two was just it was it was just a specific or the end of such a time in this country that hasn't been the same since. I think part of it is that we had a clear and defined enemy, and there's few skirmishes after that where everything was so black and white. That's true. We really knew who we were fighting, and they were fighting against, and it was a very clear situation. That It was all hands. And it was good versus evil. It wasn't yeah. just, well, who should claim this territory? It was like truly evil things were happening that we, the good guys, had to fight against. Yes, it was a very all hands on deck, even down to, you know, you girl in high school, write a letter to a GI. That's how you can do your part kind of thing, you know. Be um, patriotic. Be Have patriotic. one in every branch of the service. Buy enough perfume to, <laughs> to, 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 you know, spray all those letters. Do you remember, maybe you don't, but in Greece, do you remember that Marty Maraschino, one of the parts that she has is one of the GIs had sent her a kimono Mm -hmm. from overseas and she opens her box of all the letters she writes to all of the different men. Yes, yes, yes. You think think I forgot the sleepover scene of Grace? (laughs) Are you crazy? (laughs) Any one of those men we could have followed in this movie and said like, oh, she married someone else. And we would have all laughed and said, who would have thought Marty was so serious with any one of them? We all know she wasn't. Well, how come the servicemen don't get that? They, but they didn't. They weren't getting the same message. No, because they're they're uh, reading the letters as they're you know keeping helmets on. Uh, exactly. Uh, try, trying not to get flat, you know, chafed. But I feel completely differently about these movies and about the women in particular. Yes, me too. Because we both. I mean, when it happened to Fred Astaire in Holiday Inn, and now here, it kept coming up. Even even in the Christmas in Connecticut, we were like, I don't understand. Like, who's doing what to who? Why did the nurse just marry the friend when right. she was supposed to marry the other one? Or it's all becoming more clear that there. First of all, there's a lot of emotion going on around war. Yeah, I'm very happy you had that conversation. I think that actually shines a light. Did it help? Like, do you? Oh, feel very like much you so. Personally, understand? I absolutely. It, it and it makes so much sense when you hear it because I think definitely we are always we always kind of had the position of these guys. Also, I mean, man, they're coming back from war. Like they just put their life on the line, and this is like their reception home. But it really does fill out the picture in a, in a whole different kind of way and makes me appreciate the whole situation much, much more. I'm very happy that you you put on your uh, journalist hat and interviewed <laughs> Thank Grandma. Thank you, Grandma, for our conversation. I mean, do we have to really talk about whether or not this is a Christmas movie? I mean, I think we should just for like a hot second. I mean, it's called Christmas Holiday, and so for that reason, I, it, a lot of people... <laughs> Well, a lot of people could, you know, accidentally, um, you know, find this on their Netflix list or what have you. Um, So, I mean, it's not a Christmas movie. It just happens to happen during Christmas leave. Yes. And that's it. That's the whole thing. Right. And specifically, it takes place really from Christmas Eve through the strike of midnight through christmas day it, the movie the entire movie takes place over the course of about 18 hours but maybe 24 tops from start to finish you know so it definitely takes place at christmas and you do have the latin mass midnight mass christmas scene which is a very powerful scene but 
that was just the power, I think, of church and the overwhelming nature of church. I don't know how much you could put that at the foot of it was Midnight Mass on Christmas Eve church that did it. Maybe a little bit, but yeah, not a Christmas movie at all. I, I think a movie that at least adults listening to should definitely check out if you're in the mood for a thriller, like a crime noir, you know, men wearing trench coats and, you know, some, hey, yeah, dame, yeah, that kind of like language and Gene Kelly in a way you've never seen him before, which I think he's fantastic in. Really enjoyed Deanna Durbin. Really enjoyed Gene Kelly. Really blown away by both performances. Definitely go check out this movie, but yeah, no, not a Christmas movie. Hey, Mike, are you ready for some fast facts? Please. The film received an Academy Award nomination for Best Musical Score for Hans J. Salter. Right at the end of the movie shoot in February 1944, Universal signed Deanna Durbin to a new exclusive six-year contract. So they must have been pretty happy with what she did here. I would say so. Mankiewicz was actually fired while writing the screenplay when Universal executives saw him drunk on the studio lot. Scandal. A week later, though, the writer walked into Jackson's office and said, Felix, don't you think Mankiewicz drunk is still better than Dwight Taylor sober? And Jackson hired him. He sounds like quite a sass mouth. Mankiewicz considered the screenplay among his 1940s successes of which he was most proud. Yeah, and Mankiewicz was always kind of drunk. I got the impression from watching Mank. I think drunk was his was his like resting state. So, so MGM didn't really know what to do with Gene Kelly. They didn't know how to market him. This movie came about a little bit because of that. So Universal loans Turhan Bay to MGM. MGM exchanges Turhan for Gene Kelly to Universal. So he can make this movie because they're like we don't know what to do with this guy like we you know he did my pal joey and we have no idea who he is as a star this was actually done on loan exchange lux radio theater broadcast a 60 minute radio adaptation of the movie on september 17th 1945 with loretta young as jackie slash abigail william holden as lieutenant mason and david bruce as robert manette Wild. the amount of times that they kept saying minute 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 at the end it was funny and it kind of sounds like phenomena Manette, manette. It does kind of sound like that. Hey, Mike, are you ready for some Jingle Bell ratings? Sure, but can I play you a clip from next week's movie first? I would be so angry if you didn't. Oh, I don't want you to be angry. Maybe try and shoot me, try and kill me. Manette. Manette, yeah. All right, here's a clip from next week's movie. All right. And I'm used to something with a little more pop under the hood, but man, this baby really handles. I mean, can't you just like wave your hand and Jedi mind trick the cops? I'm Santa Claus, Teddy, not Yoda. Okay, so that's Kurt Russell. It I is Kurt, his voice. baby. And he just said, I'm Santa Claus. <laughs> yeah. So that's some clues. But to be honest with you, I don't I don't know the name of this movie. Well, it is the 2018 Netflix original movie, The Christmas Chronicles. So that's what we're going to be covering next week. A very wholesome, family fun, friendly Christmas movie, I hope. Anyway, I, I, hope I don't so know. Too. I haven't watched it yet, but I hope it is. So Me too. All right, are we ready to give Jingle Ball ratings? I went first last time. Uh, yes. Shame on me. I did not have my spreadsheet open. Open it. It's opening. It's opening the vault. Chong, chong. What do you think you're going to give this one? 
oh, I'm going to go low on it uh, because it's not a Christmas movie. But it's better than Kiss Kiss Bang Bang and it's better than... Yeah, yeah. The, it's, the better than Met- Met- the... it's better than Metropolitan also. Better than Metropolitan and better than Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. So, so I'm, I'm, I mean, I'm going to go with... the threes? Uh, no, I'm going to go two. I'm going to go two. What did I give Metropolitan? Didn't you I gave I Metropolitan, Metropolitan a one, which is also what we gave Kiss Kiss Bang Bang. Uh, yeah, so I'm going to give this a two because it's not a Christmas movie at all, but I liked it obviously more than Kiss Kiss Bang Bang, which is a horrible movie and i liked it more than metropolitan which maybe tangentially is slightly more christmasy those christmas trees and sally fowler's fowler's uh you know a soiree room our our (laughs) living room or or something else and the cha-cha and all that but i like this movie more so i'm giving this one two jingle bells I'm going to give this one a 2.25 because I actually think that there's something important about Midnight Mass that really is I'm willing to give it some credit for. It's not a Christmas movie, but I think that Christmas Eve, if we've learned anything throughout all of our watching the last 45 weeks, Christmas Eve has a certain certain something that is I'm willing to say there's a magic to that night that just you tell the truth on Christmas. You tell the truth on Christmas. You like that? And see what happened here? She told the truth. He told the truth. Everyone's telling the truth. I gotta tell you, I have cried a lot during Midnight Masses. I have been moved many times in my life by Midnight Mass. It is a powerful event. I always tear up at the end when you're singing like... Just this. It's the time. It's it's nighttime in a church. All the candles are the only light you see. It's cold and bundled up. Everybody's like... Everybody's kind of huddled together in like a sweet way. It feels like you have, you know, not to be like, you know, druids gathered in the field at Stonehenge, but going out to church at midnight is a very particular kind of thing to do because normally you go to church during the day, say, you know, in the morning on Sunday or noon or whatever to be there at midnight where the only light out, there's nothing, there's no light coming through the stained glass windows. The church is lit by candles, the music, the poinsettias, you know, on the altar. It's, it's a whole thing. It's a whole vibe. It is a time that kind of strips you to the bone. Can I tell you something hilarious? This can, (laughs) so midnight. I'd be mad if you didn't. (laughs) <laughs> midnight mass the last couple of years it was a couple of years ago uh, you always get there early to try to save seats because we're all trying to sit in the same pew right so trying to save seats people behind me also trying to save seats but the it's a husband and a wife and they're trying to save for the rest of the family who's still coming she cannot stop worrying that they have parked in a spot that she feels perhaps is illegal and she just can't let it go like she's talking about it and talking about it, talking about it. no I'm, I'm when i say saving seats i mean i'm here like 45 minutes early like i've brought my gum i'm like totally like you know scrolling through my facebook like i'm i'm chilling he's totally silent and she continues to worry about it and finally she's like i'm just gonna go check i'm gonna go see if there's a sign and he goes if you get up i'm not saving your seat <sighs> That is like the most insane thing you can say when we've all gotten there 45 minutes before mass and you are not going to save her seat if she goes checks it. I was like, oh, I mean, really, my my gun might have fallen right out of my mouth. Like, I was like, oh, sometimes enough (laughs) is enough. Oh my gosh. Well, I think your jingle, I think your uh, warning to our listeners if they don't give us a five star review is that we're not saving your seat at midnight mass. <laughs> for sure. For sure. I actually I actually had a different line in mind, but maybe I will say that one instead because 
Uh, that's this is good. Caroline. And this is Mike. Thank you for listening to the 52 Weeks of Christmas podcast. If you wouldn't mind heading over to Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen and download podcasts and rate, review, and subscribe, we would really appreciate it. And while you're there, if you could give us a five-star rating, we would really appreciate it. And you know what? If you don't, we're not going to save your seats at Midnight Mass. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. This has been an original Pod Clubhouse production. Pod Clubhouse is a podcast network dedicated to encouraging collaboration among podcasters and friends to bring a fresh voice and diverse perspective on a wide array of content. Please visit and leave a comment for us at podclubhouse.com. Rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast feeds on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. You can find us at Pod Clubhouse. Our DMs are always open, and we'd love to hear from you.